So if you may have, you may have guessed from Jamie's reading, we're in Romans chapter 8 in a series that we're calling Secure. Now last week we walked through some incredibly good news, but then we also relayed that that comes tethered to some bad news. We said that the good news is this, that as a child of God, if you are a child of God, you are an heir of God, you are a co-heir with Christ, and that means that we will inherit everything that God owns. And oh, by the way, God owns everything. So the good news is that you and I are the winners of the biggest lottery in the history of mankind, but it comes packaged in some bad news, and that's this, that you and I are going to have to suffer to get it. Romans 8, 17, and if we're children, we're also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. Now, I think if uh, silver lining, if there's any kind of silver lining that can be found in something like a pandemic, it's this. I think we understand this message of a world filled with suffering and pain much, much better than we did three or four years ago prior to the pandemic. I think we resonate more. I, one of the things I said last week, right, was, listen, if 2020 was a drink, it would be a drink for a colonoscopy prep, right? And see, that kind of an observation is born out of suffering. It's born out of what we had to endure together as, and many of us had to watch people that we loved, right, go through that and, then, uh, and even die. So some of us remember that as a time of great loss. But before you notice anything else about that word suffering that we should notice in this context, I want you to notice that he says it's moving us somewhere. Even though it's hard, even though it's tragic, even though it's difficult, even though for some of us we might even use the word unspeakable, it's still moving us to something good. God is going to bring good out of things like suffering and pain. And this is why Paul says in Romans 8, 18, he says, you know, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth even comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. He's just saying, look, compared to, compared to where we're headed, the suffering of this life is light and momentary. I mean, uh, you know, we get an incredible glorious future with God that is actually served through our suffering. Now, this week, we're going to talk about why. We're going to lay out why suffering is so prominent in this world. In other words, why it is that life sometimes just feels so incredibly hard and difficult. And here's how Paul describes this. Verses 19 through 21, Romans chapter 8. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons, that's you and I, to be revealed. In other words, he's saying here the creation waits and longs for the time when you and I get and receive our glorified bodies, when we can cast off the shell of this body and receive our new body fashioned in the image of Jesus. And he goes on to say this, for the creation was subjected to futility. This is a word, have you ever looked at the world and just thought, wow, that's just so random. Like, wow, there's a tidal wave. That's really random. Wow, there's an earthquake. 
That's really random and tragic. That's what this word feudal means. The world's been subjected to that. It just seems random. It seems like, man, we live in a world where bad things happen. There's futility. In fact, he goes on to say this, creation was not subjected to that willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That's God. We'll talk more about that in a minute. In the hope, now let's pause there. This is so strange to me. So in this world, you have futility, but with equal force, there's hope. Futility, but there's hope. And the rest of the world, friends, can't say that. When the rest of the world suffers, they just suffer. There's no purpose to that. There's no meaning. But when a follower of Jesus suffers, they don't suffer randomly. Uh, So it was put to futility. And then it says this, um, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. So Paul's telling us here, look, creation longs, it yearns for the glorification of our bodies. And then he explains why. Uh, Now, here's what you need to know. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31 says this, that God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Now, this sentence is far more important than God just saying, hey, good job, we did good. When God declares what he has created good, he is saying, look, it's perfect. It's perfect. But any of us would look at the, around at the world in which we live right now, and we would not say, yeah, when I look around at the world and all the pain and all the suffering, it's just perfect. So what happened? What happened? And I want you to know the words Paul used to describe this futility. He's using words like suffering, bondage, decay, pain, uh, and We've, we know because of the residue of a perfect creation, we can reason that this world is not meant to be this way. It's not meant uh, to be this hard, but yet it is. I'll just give you an example of that. Years ago, years ago, uh, there was a house fire in Rushville, and three children died in that fire. And no parent... No grandparent should have to go to their child or their grandchild's funeral. No pastor should have to preach at a funeral like that. But, but that is the world in which we live. That's a world that's been subjected to futility. So why? Well, friends, the answer is because of sin. Specifically, Because of Adam's sin, and it's important to talk about what Adam's sin is because it's far deeper and more profound than I think many of us realize. So many of us, if we've ever read Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, and we think about what theologians call the fall, which is what Paul's referencing here, many of us think that Adam's sin was simply eating some fruit from a tree that he was commanded not to eat from. But I would argue that eating that fruit was only a symptom of something much darker, much more insidious, and that was this, Adam refused to trust God. 
The reason he ate that fruit was because at his core, he believed he could decide what was good and right. So Adam didn't hit his wife in the garden, but he did hit God in the garden. And Adam didn't hit God with his fist, he hit God with his heart. By eating that fruit, Adam was saying, I don't trust you to provide the best life for me, God. I think I know how to live my best life without you. I reject you. I reject your instruction. I reject your wisdom. I reject your love. And I vote for me. I will do what seems best to me. Now, we need to know that this was a huge blow to the heart of God, which has earned this world thousands of years of horrible physical misery in the world. But friends, let me tell you, that is what happens to a world where people reject God and vote for themselves. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't know God very well, you're not in touch with, you know, God's character, his nature, his holiness, you might look at that incident and say, well, you know, that honestly to me seems a little extreme. It seems over the top. Well, no, it wasn't. See, God is an infinite God. And Adam insulted God in a way of infinite proportions And so as a result, God subjected the world to futility. But he did it in hope. He did it in the hope that it would would turn into something glorious, something beautiful. Uh, And this is why he says this in verse 22. He says, you know, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains. I love this analogy, with labor pains until now. So here's what he's getting at in this verse. He's saying it's so important to understand that this groaning is not a useless thing. Something good is going to come from it. And so he, he talks about labor pain. So let me show you some pictures of groaning. There is suffering in childbirth, right? There is pain in delivery, but all of that pain and all of that suffering is headed somewhere. Something good is about to come out of all that pain and suffering. Now I want to show you a picture of joy. This joy. See, what Paul is saying is he's saying, look, yeah, there's futility, but there's Also, in that pain and suffering in this present age, it's moving somewhere. It's moving towards new life, and it's moving towards new glory. And in in this moment, this mom has forgotten all about the pain of, uh, of delivery, right? She is only focused on new life, new life. I remember when each of our three children were born. Every single time there was pain, suffering, screaming, labored breathing, faintness, frantic nurses, prayers for delivery. In every case, that is, until my wife had finally had enough and told me to leave the room. (laughs) 
This is a true story. When our oldest son, Aaron, was born, they did a C-section on my wife, Jackie. I'm in the delivery room with her, and as they are doing the C-section, I'm watching the C-section. I start to get a little bit faint, actually. The room kind of starts to spin. I realize suddenly I really need to sit down. And at one point in the midst of my episode, I'm absolutely sure there were more doctors and nurses attending to me in the delivery room than my wife who was actually giving birth. Paul is just saying, sure, creation groans. It's hard. It's difficult. It's painful in this life and in this age. But it's, it's not always going to groan. And it's moving you to something. It's moving you to new life, a better life, a glorified life. And it isn't just that creation groans. Look what he goes on to say in verse 23. Not only that, in other words, not only does creation groan, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves. So we live in a day and age where creation groans, but we also live in a day and age where we groan within ourselves. But you didn't need me to tell you that, did you? I mean, you already knew that. I mean, groaning is frailty, it's weakness, it's bondage, it's decay. Groaning is pain and it's disappointment. And so we groan within ourselves, but it's so important to understand this next line. He says, we groan while we're waiting for the completeness of our adoption or the redemption of our bodies. In other words, we groan because our, we, we all have bodies that uh, are going to let us down. They're going to wear out. They're going to give up. They're going to succumb to things like disease and illness and sickness. And all of that weakness is going to move us toward God. He says we groan because we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. That hasn't happened yet. We are housed in bodies that decay. Now, it's important to remember that Paul had begun this section by talking about our present suffering, right? Just, so he's just saying, look, here in verse 18, uh, children of God are described as the ones having the first fruits of the Spirit. A farmer's first fruit was the fruit that ripened first that he would harvest out of the fields. And that first harvest was a guarantee of more harvest to come. That's what a fruit, first fruit is. It's a guarantee of more to come. So he's saying, look, even though our bodies house the Holy Spirit, he's a first fruit guaranteeing our inheritance. That's what Ephesians chapter 1 says. Our bodies still have to suffer. They have to groan along with creation. So he's saying, look, we're going to groan within ourselves while we're in this age waiting for the redemption of our bodies. In other words, our glorified bodies, new and better bodies, bodies formed and fashioned in the image of Jesus that don't wear out or give out. And this tells us something else as well, and that's this, that it's okay to want to be out of that wheelchair and off of those crutches. 
that it's fine to want to be free of those cortisone injections or the constant Tylenol or pain meds that we have to take, that it's normal to long for the days when we were young and strong and we had bodies that were mostly free from pain. But it's so important to remember at the same time that that pain, especially as we get older, because getting old is not for sissies, is it? No, I can tell you it's not. That longing in our bodies, that groaning that we do within ourselves while we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies, that is meant to point us to something far bigger than ourselves. It's meant to move us toward God, toward the hope of God. These bodies that we have are meant for the Lord, and they are meant to move us toward Him. And as they wear out, they are meant to remind us, and this is so important, that this world is not our home. This world is not your home. And if you had a body that didn't wear out or break down, you would lose sight of that. You would go through life oblivious to that. But the fact that we have to wait... The fact that we don't have it yet means that we have, we have no choice but to depend on God. We have no choice but to look up. And friends, that's a kindness. It is. It's a kindness of God. So C.S. Lewis writes this in his book, The Problem of Pain. It's one of my favorite quotes. He says this, if I was a better pastor I would have, or a more prepared pastor, I would have put it on a slide, but this is just where we are. All right, here's the quote. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a morally deaf world. God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us through our pain. The bodies that you and I have, these bodies are meant to be an ongoing reminder of our need for Christ and to remind us of the hope that one day we will gain the redemption of our bodies. It won't always be painful. I may be in chronic pain today, but there will be no pain in the body I inherit tomorrow. And then he goes on to say this, now in this hope, what hope? Well, the hope of the redemption of our bodies. Now, in this hope, we were saved, but hope that is seen, in other words, if we already had it, it wouldn't be hope, right? Because who hopes for what he already has or who hopes for what he sees? And then in look, verse, look what he says in verse 25. Now, if we hope for what we do not see, again, we're still talking about the future redemption of our bodies, we eagerly wait for it with great, great patience. Now, that phrase, eagerly wait, means like you're waiting in a time of hardship. You're waiting through something that's really, really disappointing to you. You're waiting in the midst of something that's really, really hurtful to you. And you're so overwhelmed by your weakness that you want that healing, you want that redemption, you want that strong body now. I mean, after all, right, isn't it true that when we're in pain, it's super duper hard to just wait? Because chronic pain, I mean, that's a grind. You know, listen, here's what I want you to know, friends. Human beings can endure a ton of things. They can. 
but they cannot endure without hope. Hope is how we live. Hope is what gets you and me from one day to the next, and I'll prove it to you. Hope is why people get married. Hope is why people have children. Hope is why people attend college or graduate school. Hope is why people join the gym. Hope is why people go to school. We live by hope. And when hope is gone, endurance and joy and energy and courage, well, all those things just evaporate. Life just begins to fade. Let me give you kind of a dumb example from my childhood of endurance out of hope. So when I was growing up, there was a food that my mom would serve to me that I absolutely detested. That food was called spinach. Uh, and so what my mom did, the strategy that she used to overcome my absolute hatred for spinach is she would, she would say this to me, listen, I want you to eat spinach because if you eat spinach, it will give you big, strong muscles. There was the hope, big, strong muscles, right? So you know what I did? I mean, listen, I, I would say it this way. I endured spinach through my entire childhood because of hope. You get that? Right? Now, as I got older and grew into a lanky teenage body and those big powerful muscles never materialized, it suddenly dawned on me, my mom was feeding me a line. She was not being honest with me, right? In fact, she would even point, there was a cartoon character when I was growing up that every time he would eat a can of spinach, he'd pop these big muscles and his name was... Just want to see if I could get you to say that. Thank you very much. Yeah, listen, Christian hope, friends, is that flawed DNA will not be allowed to have the last word, at least not in God's universe. Christian hope says that limbs that hang limp and useless in this world will one day define grace and beauty in the next one. Christian hope says that the mind held captive by Alzheimer's disease today will one day be characterized by creativity and a sparkling intellect. That's the point here. Christian hope gets us through, but it gets even better. Look what he says in chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. He says, in the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we don't know what we should pray for as we should. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. Did you catch this? I love this. So creation groans and we groan within ourselves, but now the Spirit who lives within us groans for us. There are three kinds of groaning in this passage. It's really important to get. And then we're told finally in verse 27, and he who searches our hearts, that's God, knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So this is so, so beautiful to me. We're told that the Holy Spirit keeps on helping us in our weakness. In other words, the Holy Spirit isn't a part-time employee. 
He's there all the time. He's constantly helping us in our weakness. He's always helping us in our weakness. He never stops helping us in our weakness. And this word helping is used only one other time in the entire Bible. In Luke chapter 10, verse 40, it's used of someone helping someone else carry a really heavy load, a load that was too heavy for them to bear by themselves. That's the way the ministry of the Holy Spirit is pictured here for us. The Holy Spirit is within us, always helping, always carrying, always strengthening, always enabling. And then he illustrates one evidence of our weakness in these bodies. He says, we don't always know in these bodies what we should pray for. We just don't know sometimes. Sometimes we get a little tongue-tied with God. So you know what the Spirit does? He intercedes for us. So the Spirit prays for us from within us. He intercedes within us with what, the, uh, what Paul says here, with groans that words cannot express. Now, it's the Holy Spirit doing the groaning, not you, not me. This is not our tongue. This is the tongue of the Holy Spirit. And it says he doesn't even need words. And do you know why? Listen to this. Verse 8, 27 tells us why God the Father understands this groaning. Because it says that he who searches our hearts, God the Father, knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So God the Father knows the mind and the heart of the Spirit, and it's no wonder because they've done life together for millennia. So God the Father knows what God the Spirit is thinking and feeling. And so even though you and I may sometimes not know how to pray or what to pray for, the Holy Spirit always prays for us from within us. And so just as the Father knows the mind of the Spirit, the Spirit knows the heart and the will of God. It's one of the things I love about this chapter. I said that's at the beginning of our series. Romans chapter 8 outlines in great detail how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, how each of the members of the Trinity, of the Godhead, play such a critical role in our security, in our salvation. So here's what Paul is saying, and this is mind-boggling. Here's what he's saying when he's talking about the Holy Spirit praying. He's talking about God praying to God according to the will of God. God praying to God according to the will of God. And friends, that is happening within you. This is simply mind-boggling. And we just sit in church and we sleep through it. It's incredible to me. Now, uh, I want to remind you of something that's really important. I don't want us to lose sight of this. So I'm going to go back to one of the very first verses that we looked at when we began this series. What is the answer to the groaning of creation and the groaning within ourselves? What's the solution to that? Well, the solution to that is our Jesus. In fact, I want you to look at these verses, Romans 7, verses 24 and 25. Paul's just lamenting his condition. What a wretched man I am. In other words, he's just said, you know, the good things I want to do, I don't do those. And the bad things I don't want to do, I do those. 
Like, is there any hope for me? Is there any help for me? In fact, he asks it this way. Who will rescue me from this body of death, this body that is doomed to die? Who will rescue me from that? Well, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The answer is Jesus. His purchase. And here is why This is so important when we tackle this problem of pain and suffering. When we think about the pain and suffering of our world, it's so important to remember this. Jesus didn't just stand by and look on a world filled with pain and suffering. He didn't even stop with, by praying for that world. No, do you know what he did? He entered into that pain and suffering. He took that on. He suffered so that he could end suffering, right? He stepped into it. He endured it. He entered into that suffering to cast out that suffering. He entered into our terror to overwhelm that terror. Sin brought death and suffering, but Jesus suffered and died to overcome death. That's our Jesus. And here's what's so incredibly comforting to me about that. It means that he knows Whatever you are going through today, whatever suffering you may have had to endure to this point in your life, Jesus knows, He understands, He gets it. Because He suffered. And His suffering had purpose as well. It was moving somewhere. And you know what that was? It was your redemption. It was the redemption of your body. It was your salvation. It was your relationship with Jesus. See, this is proof. The cross, friends, is proof that God can take uh, incredible suffering, incredible hardship, and turn and use that for good purposes. And we're going to look at this promise next week. But what it proves is that God can take all things, even suffering, and use them for good. Because he's God. And he's bigger. So in the same way, he recycles Jesus' suffering to bring good into our lives. One day, he's going to recycle all of our suffering to bring good into the next life. And this means, this means something else that's so important. Friends, it, it means that as you and I endure suffering in this age, in this world, in this body, we don't endure that alone. We have the equipping, enablement, and empowerment of the Holy Spirit of God. So I don't have to face one moment of hardship out of simply my own resources. No, I can choose and I can face that hardship out of his resources, out of his endurance, out of his strength, and not my my finite strength. And this means that every member of the Trinity, every member of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all working to strengthen and comfort me on life's most difficult days. So I want to ask you a question. Maybe you're here and until today you've had to endure suffering all by yourself. All alone. No sense of purpose in that. You were just suffering. It wasn't moving you anywhere. It wasn't accomplishing anything good in your life. 
If that's true of you, you don't have to do it alone anymore. You can invite Jesus into that. You can invite Jesus into your life. And I would urge you to do that if that's something that, um, you know, today's just been kind of an epiphany for you. And, and I'm so serious about this that I actually want to give you an opportunity to pray that prayer with me, along with me this morning. And so I want to invite everybody to bow your heads. So Lord Jesus, uh, we acknowledge, we would say together today with Paul, what a wretched man I am. God, we... Every one of us in the room, we recognize today that the things we want to do, we don't do the good things there, but the, the bad things that we don't want to do, we do those things instead. And that's pretty much characterized our lives apart from you. So God, today we just all, every one of us in the room, we acknowledge that we're sinners, that we fall short of your glory, that we've missed the bullseye that you set for our lives, that there's a gap between your perfection and our imperfection, it creates a huge gap between us and you that only you can fill. And so God, in that admission that we're sinners, we ask for your forgiveness. We ask you to be our forgiver today. And you said that you came to offer, that you didn't come to judge the world, but you came to save the world. And then Paul told us a little later that you came to offer the forgiveness of sins. And so we reach for that and we believe that you are forgiving our sins even as we're asking. But God, it's not enough for you to just forgive our sins because we just keep running back and doing the same sin over and over. We need your strength. We need your help. We need your leadership. We need your guidance in our lives. And so we not only invite you to forgive us our sin and ask you to do that, but we also invite you to begin to come into our lives and lead us and guide us. We ask you to be our leader. We ask you to be our Lord, not just our Savior. So would you come in and would you make us the kind of men and women, not just that we want to be, but the Men and women that you want us to be. Men and women that would fulfill the plan, not just that we have for our lives, but the plan that you have for our lives. God, we want to be those men and women. And so we, we invite you to be our forgiver and our leader. And God, we thank you that when any man or woman asks you to come in, you say this, you say in the book of Revelation, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will dine with them. The most intimate kind of fellowship that can be imagined in the Bible, Jesus. That's what you promised to do. To have such a close relationship with us that you would eat with us. That you would share a meal with us. That you would share a table with us. And not just one day, but every day. And so we give you great, great thanks and praise. And we do that in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Listen, if you prayed that prayer for the very first time, would you just be willing just to raise your hand? I see that. Thank you. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. God's so good. 
God's so kind. I hope you feel that, those of you who, who raised your hand. So if you're one of those people, uh, it's so important that you uh, let us know. Like, so, you know, we, they're at the Connections desk. Uh, we have first-timers cards. If you prayed to receive Jesus, we'd invite you to stop by. Let them high-five you about your yes to Jesus and fill out a card so we can come alongside you and help you begin to grow in that new relationship with him. Deal? Okay, awesome. That's super exciting um, for us. Okay, so that's the deal. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to land the plane. I'm going to give you some marching orders. So we talked today a lot in our passage, didn't we, about hope. And you may have noticed that hope is actually a word we use in our mission statement. We say that we want to be a disciple-making church that brings hope and healing to our community. And what that means is that if you're here with us, you are a disciple, and I can tell you what the purpose for your life is. You are meant to bring hope and healing to the people around you. So I want you to pray, I want you to kind of reflect right now about somebody in your life, and maybe you know they're going through something really difficult. They're really struggling with something. Maybe you need to pick up a phone or shoot a text and send them a word of hope or encouragement. You are a minister of reconciliation. You are a representative of the God of hope. So how will you live that out this week? What will you do concretely and really to bring hope and or healing to someone else. I don't know about you guys. It is really, really easy for me to get all caught up in all the healing that Brad Davis needs and all the help that Brad Davis needs and all the hope that Brad Davis needs, but be kind of blind to the hope and the help and the strength that people who may even live in my house with me need. Listen, let's covenant to be better than that. Let's covenant to do better than that. So I'm going to pray one more time, and I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to put a name in your head so that you can reach out to them with a message of hope and or healing. Maybe a prayer of hope and or healing. Whatever they may need. Let me pray that one more time. Holy Spirit, you live within. We're grateful. And so, God, we ask you to pray with groans and utterances. Maybe a name's not coming to mind for us, but the mind of God knows the will of God. And so by that spirit, would you reveal a name? Would you speak to every man and woman? Would you prompt and move them towards someone that they can offer a meaningful word of hope or encouragement? And would you do that right now? Now, God, would you give us the courage and the strength to follow through on that? Would you help us to be disciples that would bring hope and healing to their community? We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.
God bless you guys. Listen, we're out about five minutes early, uh, so if you have children in the kids zone, if you would wait just a few minutes before you go to get them, their teachers have it very tightly planned. We want your kiddos to get all that God has for them today. So God bless you guys. Listen, if you can stick around for a few minutes and help us stack chairs, that would be amazing. God bless you guys. Have a great week.